Well, welcome back to Pain Reframed. We are excited today to have Dr. Stacy Barrows with us, who is a, a legend in really movement therapy and the use of a variety of sensory motor techniques, particularly the Feltenkrais method in the management of patients with pain. This is Pain Reframed. No further ado, I'd like to welcome you, Stacy, and to Pain Reframed. Hello, and thank you so much for inviting me on to your podcast. I am a big, big fan and certainly a fan of some of the prior people that you've had on before. So thank you for including me. Stacy, do you mind giving the uh, listeners just a little brief background about how you got to where you are in this movement space? Absolutely. And you'll keep it brief for me, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it was when I was born. No, I'm kidding. My husband calls me an enigma because I knew what I wanted to do when I was in high school, and that was be a PT. Compassion and empathy and movement and sign me on. So that was really my beginnings, and my first medical director was a rheumatologist. So I think that really opened the door for my first, my beginnings of pain management advocacy. So I got very involved with the Arthritis Foundation and found that there really weren't a lot of tools at the time, and I love teaching. And I got introduced to the Feldenkrais method along the way through one of my um, former instructors who actually had a neuro-based background. And we didn't have conversations like this when, when this all came about. So I really didn't wrap my brain around it or my body around it for a long time, despite growing up athletically and through embodying movement as a form of learning. So it was in that introduction that I kept discovering things that I didn't know, part of which was in my own body, which really fascinated me. And one thing that um, I tell my clients all the time is they'll say something maybe nice about my posture or whatever, and, and I will enlighten them that prior to the Feldenkrais training, my posture was really erect, but it was rigid. And it created strain in my neck, and I kept doing all the modalities that, you know, I thought I knew what to do. And it wasn't until I really found that it was about adaptable postures and things like that, which really opened the door for me to think about my own movement science from another vantage point. Well, that statement about adaptability is so fascinating because I would say that we often think that the more precise we are at everything and doing just this exact thing over and over makes us better when in fact it's our ability to adapt to a variety of loads. Would you mind talking about a little more about that concept, adaptability, and how you view that? In the Feldenkrais training, you are exploring through your own personal experience, which really was different for me. There, there is a very different way to learn that way. And one of the things that we learned was when we reduced effort, when we did things in small effort movements and things like that, we could actually sense ourselves in movement in real time. That was also just a fascinating concept to me because when we move quickly through habits, we really kind of chunk things together. So to move things, to, to have somebody teach us to do something differently, that's why children learn at such rapid speeds. So what I think can happen when we look at the correct form is we just load tension, you know, because there isn't, what I also find interesting is there is no thought without motor effects. So when people think about doing something and they're going to re reference it from usually two-dimensional paradigms like, you know, uh, skeletons, um, things like that. So it's very hard for them to sense 
what, that there's a range of motion. And so we've also discovered that people never repeat the same pattern over and over again. And so one of the things we need to do is build that repertoire of variability back in. So it's kind of like getting more vocabulary, more movement vocabulary. And we have to do things in small movements because we're looking at how holistic it can be. So it's, it's really kind of accessing through our senses. So if we are, we are tensing, we can't possibly learn. And I think this whole methodology is based on how to make us better learners. Can we take a step back there, Stacy? I'm coming in with persistent pain of multiple years, uh, neck, back, and a guarded, for lack of a better word, posture and a bit fearful of movement. How might that, what you described, look? How they would look or how would it look how I'd want to intervene? Yeah, how, how you would intervene. How okay. would that, that, that session maybe look if you could describe well, that? What, what I really do believe is that, first of all, I think being in their presence so that they can sense that you're really, what Dr. O'Sullivan says, hearing their story. So, so I think that can, that can really um, diminish threat right there is let them talk, let them express, you know, where they're going. Don't guide them too much, but try and keep them so that they can really, if you can start to get a sense of who they are. And I think that that is so tangible for them to feel and sense after I've heard their story, if they're capable, you know, it just depends. I have a really long hallway that's very boring and dull and, you know, no paintings. And I take them out in the hallway and we just walk. And what I do, again, it's within their comfort zone because that's, and I try and help break down this concept that they're supposed to do something in a right way. So I will have them walk and I'll ask them questions. What do they notice? And, and that takes a little while and a lot of trust right there for them to understand what I'm going about. But once I get them to consider the concept of what's fluid, you know, that, that is so removed from them to even thinking about. And so I let them use whatever it takes to find a fluid action or movement just to begin a conversation of their own sensitivity that there is movement that's a possibility. That term fluid, as you, uh-huh. because again, we speak in metaphors and it's, how do you get them to sense that? I mean, many people probably readily do, but others, no, you, how do you inquire? Exactly. I think that's a really, really good point. I may, depending on who I have, I will talk athletics and talk about when you see a fluid athlete, what that means, or I'll shift off that word altogether. And so if they don't have where I'm kind of going with that, that idea of freedom or ease, because a lot of them don't, you know, that was one thing that I discovered when we did that um, study that I told you a ways back is that it it was not in their vocabulary to to have any of these movement references that because of their, their rigidity, their perceptual rigidity. So then I would, what I I do is my inquiry is just to try and bring it really down to basics and ask them to notice their arms. Such a majority of them are fascinated that they didn't even know their arms weren't moving through their walking space. So now I have a conversation and I explain to them what's the possibility that something has stopped them from moving. And so let's say they have chronic low back pain. In this case, it was neck pain, but let's say they have chronic low back pain and that they have really tried so hard to immobilize their upper body to find the right posture that they've now really interfered with their ability to move as a whole system. So that's that's one way of looking at fluidity. But, you know, it may be something that I'll evolve all for them. And the reason I take them out for the walk in the beginning is that we love to see if there's a way they can integrate 
what they're going to learn in the clinic. Don't you love when you think you've had a great session and they said, yeah, that's great. And if you have, you know, windows, you can watch them and they completely collapse down into what was their prior existence. And you think, well, that's my fault. You know, they never had a way to sense changes. So when you give them a grid or pattern recognition, to the best of your degree of what you're doing, you're not correcting them, which is the thing that's hard for us to not do as PTs or personal trainers or anybody that's movement related is to want to teach them a the right way. But what we want more before we do anything is a baseline is what they're doing. And then if there's a clinical session and there's changes, I will make a point to them to be, be aware when you leave here, even if you're carrying your purse or something like that, to see if you notice anything. Then with the follow-up, obsession almost I don't know this is my experience they'll come in apologetically I hardly did anything because I don't really know what I was supposed to do this is so hard to have a felt sense as a strategy as a home program so I said really I said and I can clearly see them moving differently so this is always a fun place to tease and I'll ask them I said so you not you didn't once think about walking oh yeah I, I couldn't stop thinking about it that's what I love is that now the monkey's not on our backs or their backs. It's basically expiration because what I described to them, when you offer something through a sensory portal, let's say you want somebody to smell basil and then you want them to smell oregano, they may not be clear of which one's which, but they can definitely differentiate. So when you can teach them how to differentiate, now you start to help them have this kind of relationship to noticing themselves with a very different attentional bias. Our listeners are so multidisciplinary and so many of them are patients as well. Do, do you think that you could give sort of a short synopsis on what some of the key principles of Feldenkrais therapy are and sort of how that might be different from what people perceive uh, traditional PT as being? Yes. Why don't, why don't we do a little mini Feldenkrais lesson? Would that be Love good? Love it. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So are you guys sitting down? Yep. <laughs> okay, so you're sitting down and your feet are flat on the floor, right? Yep. Okay, and so a little bit of space in front of you and so forth? Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay, yep. good. And so if somebody's, I listen to a lot of podcasts in my car. So just obviously, if you're listening there, come back to this. <laughs> but listen to it. And there's a running comment that Feldenkrais is easy to experience, hard to articulate. So what we're going to to do is create an experience to try and find how this opens up better dot conversation with this. Okay, so while you're sitting there, what I want you to do is I want you, and I'm going to ask that you practice doing things slowly, because that takes time to notice. And by slowing down, you already are probably moving outside your habit patterns. So now I want you to slowly look to the left, and come back to the center, and then look to the right, and come back to the center. Do that a few times. You'll go to the left, noticing how what your range is, mark it with your eyes, and then when you go to the center and then look to the right, mark it again, come back to the center. Now look to the left again and notice what is your comfort range and what is your resistance-free range. Those are not easy, so err on doing less because you want to build those discrimination skills. And now that you've done it back and forth a few times, pause in the center. Now, a Feldenkrais strategy would be work on the good side. That, isn't that a great idea? It's such an optimistic concept. So whatever choice you have, I'm going to refer to one side just so I can make sense of it, so it makes sense to any audience. But let's say you notice it was easier to look to the left. So what I'm going to ask you to do is you'll put your left arm out in front of you, 
bend your left elbow and put your right hand, excuse me, your left hand on your right shoulder. Take your right hand and cup your left elbow. Check in again that you're sitting with both feet flat on the floor and you notice where your pelvis is, that you're, you know, comfortable, that you can breathe easily. Now, keeping this position, you're going to do half as much and you'll go to your easy side and turn to that side gently and come back to the center. As you do that, you'll do it several times each time, making sure you only do a small movement. Now, if that's uncomfortable, what we do know is that you can think through the movement and just practice because it's about patterns in the brain. And as you do that several times, you're going to make sure that you just breathe. It's not a correct breath pattern or a correct posture in the Feldenkrais method. Again, it's adaptive respiration or adaptive posture. You're just making sure you don't run interference. Now, pause in the center and bring your arms down by your sides for a moment. Rest breaks aren't because you just did something so fatiguing, but Feldenkrais was very interested in keeping people in the learned and the attentive state. He studied a lot of work with like Milton Ericksonian hypnosis, uh, autosuggestion. He was very curious, how do we keep people very attentive? And he found if he interrupted their attention, that was really the muscle they were working on. Now come back in the same position, your, your arm that you chose to caress that, that opposite shoulder, you're cupping that elbow, so it's just like before. And you'll focus on a spot directly in front of you, that's your computer, you know, pick an icon on your screen or whatever. And now do the same movement, maybe about half as much, but keep your eyes on that spot. And again, you're to practice doing less. So what's happening, you'll notice, is you're moving in the direction that you've been practicing, but your eyes are staying back where the center of you is, and you might notice that that maybe changed the effect of the way your head is moving. So if your head's moving with the direction, either pause it, or if your head stays still, see if you can move your head just a little bit, keeping your eyes on that center spot just to break up whatever you're doing and simplifying. And after you've done that a few times, take yourself back to the center, lower your arms down again, and now look to your side of the direction you went to and see if it got any easier. See if your range got a little further. Hey guys, since I can't see you, I gotta know what, what your experience <laughs> <laughs> I certainly gained a few degrees. That was my experience. Yeah. Good. And, and you can see how fast that was, right? That's the part that can really be fascinating is that you can't describe that as fascial release. You can't describe that as, as functional or proximal stability or whatever it is. You're organizing. And Feldenkrais liked the terms of self-organization that you, through your senses, through your intention, that you can go to the quickest action. You can see the martial artist in him because... You know, his definition of the best posture or the most potent state is you can move in any direction without any preliminary adjustment. So let's say you're in a position and what we find with people with chronic pain is there's usually a lot of unwanted body tension. So there has to be a way to practice a process of inhibition. 
And how do we use, how do we do that? And I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'm fascinated when I read that that there is a chemical reaction in the inhibitory process in the brain, just like there is in the facilitatory process. But how do we address it? How do we do it? It cannot be a top-down directive. There has to be bottom-up processing. So there's a huge amount. There's two paradigms or, or functional tools that the Feldenkrais method uses, and we just did what's called the awareness of movement. So we used a movement puzzle or experiment because he was a scientist. In fact, he was a nuclear physicist. I mean, that's he was a brainiac. And he explored using his principles of science in a way that he knew athletically as a martial artist and how to look at that. So it's looking at that from that perspective of how do we do it? How do we address the refinement? And so people with pain... This was the other reason I was curious about the study is I don't want this method method or modality to be an elitist, you know, process that people only certain people can afford to use. I'm in Los Angeles and I do see a lot of people that can afford to come for it. But I love that the class version you can fit many people in and I'll usually encourage them to come to the class at least once or twice and then there are online lessons. There are, and I direct them to that because I love physical therapy love giving out things for free, right? And so I love that I don't want me to be the guru and that I want them to know that they're in the process of self-guided learning. Now, the other version is the hands-on. What I discovered is Feldenkrais did this with people through their clothes. And in the process of learning to do the hands-on part of it is you are really practicing a way to kind of glove your contact so that when you move them, they almost don't know that somebody else is moving them. So what happens is it really helps internalize that kinesthetic acuity of sensing their body. And, and that, that really means you have to be extremely aware and have your own noise out of your own system. But I do know the first time after being a PT for a while, when a Feldenkrais practitioner lifted my head for the first time, I was fascinated because I didn't feel them touch me, lift me. There was no sense that they did that. It was like, it, I, I can't remember, Tim, you were interviewed about the some of the PTs that are coming out now of looking at improv. To me, this was the improvisational relationship between the two of us in the room. And so when you really allow somebody to feel a real sense of non-threat through touch through support, through your own self-organization that they know that when they're being moved, they're incredibly safe. Often, I won't go to somebody's head. That is very threatening. You know, you might go right to their feet, and this always has to open a conversation. They came, and they have shoulder, chronic shoulder or persistent shoulder pain, and I'm after their feet. But, but I want to tell them that it's important that we let them start to sense other parts of themselves and obviously, my thinking is I want them to sense the ground. I know that they'll breathe differently. I know that there will probably be a state change and that they will be able to access their own motor planning a little differently. Even from the fundamentals of medicine, how did we take systems approaches of, say, the cardiovascular system, the urogenital system, you know, where we would look at all the factors and how the system works as a whole, 
how did we take that into reductionism? And now when it comes to musculoskeletal pain, we look at this one piece of the tissue that uh, void of the system. I just find it fascinating as I'm listening to you. Absolutely. And I'll tell you, that has been fun to see the evolution of that change. Listen to Dr. Deutsch's second book. And what I'm going to refer to is the Brain Science Podcast. Do you know that podcast? Yeah. Yes, oh, gosh. It is fantastic. Excellent. And she interviews Dr. Deutsch the second time around from a second book. And I know, I'm pretty sure it's um, podcast 116. And he will talk about a lot of things of how medicine has really become reductionistic. And, you know, I don't think it's a surprise that he came from a very, very diverse background in literature and philosophy. And then, you know, so, and he was introduced to this work, but he was also, you know, Dr. Paul Bakirita was literally the pioneer of neuroscience. Well, Dr. Paul Bakirita and Feldenkrais knew of each other and they had a dialogue that they could talk with amongst one another because Feldenkrais clearly knew the nervous system was plastic. And so he, you know, he just didn't have the, the science to talk within the circles that he could really drive this forward but now we can and I think that's really great and you know we're also not from the frame of mind that less is more we're getting there we that is a really difficult one for it's counterintuitive for people is I'm hardly doing anything I don't know how this could matter and once they start to experience and shed their pain then I've got really their best buy-in. When they come to me, they've had so much intervention. They don't trust anybody. And I don't blame them. And I feel for them that they have to go one more time. And I try and find a way that there can be the simplest, like a little mini that we call them three-minute miracles, so that there's something that can really tap into their senses so they can believe, well, I felt something. I don't know what it is. And and what I found studying the Feldenkrais method is that there was no barrier for for me to believe in kinesio tape and cold laser. There was no barriers for me on that. Now, I I won't argue it because I'm not going to be able to even step into that crowd. But I I certainly can appreciate where it could possibly fit in with, with a wellness approach, you know, rather than a pathophysiologic approach, but looking at it for more of the driver of functional medicine. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate this idea of you know, getting someone to do less. I love that you keep saying, you know, the goal here is is to do less and to not push ourselves into those spaces because I think so many of these patients that are in chronic pain, they want to escape their bodies. I mean, they want to get out of it. They're very uncomfortable. They're, they're miserable. To have them slow down and find ways to move comfortably and maybe realize it's not the worst place in the world to exist in their body is a huge step forward. Exactly. I think that's what I find it. Interesting. And I agree with you 100%. I'll take it one step further. Because I'm in a very high metropolitan area, the people that I have with with persistent pain are very, very productive individuals. And guess, you know, can you imagine the sense that they within themselves often will feel like I, I am not, they think I'm not doing enough. So for, for me to ask them to do small, minimal movements, you know, where does that come off? And so I have to really help them break that down. And what I've always appreciated is when people come back and said, I can discriminate things about my pain. That's another really wonderful thing. And I try and bring in 
their family members and have them take a class so that there is a way that they don't have to do this. They don't have to sell it to anybody else. They're purely about taking care of themselves. But clearly, and, and I'm not faulting my pe- I love physical therapy. I'm excited if this gets into, and, and by the way, it is huge in Australia and Europe, Israel. It's part of their curriculum. They, there's so much research going on with them. So I, I don't know why we're held up a little bit over here, but I know the New York uh, Institute is now really starting to come alive. They had a great New York Times article about a month ago about pain and the Feldenkrais method. I think it's really important that there's a conversation about this so that this is right here is going to help that. You want to try something else? Would that be good? Totally. Okay. So it's called the bell hand. And this may not translate great in this situation, but we're going to try it anyway. And I don't generally teach it in the first or second, who knows, but I, I want a little time so that they can um, begin to do things. But, but I think if, some, if one person gets some benefit of this, it's worth it. So it's called the bell hand and Feldenkrais used it as a way to even more tap into the unconscious state of that individual. And I find it really helpful with pain because if they have this tool, they can get out of the fight and flight, you know, response a lot of time. And, and it's the right side, the right hand. My understanding is that it, the, it's the right hand because of a right dominant world. So he's looking at cortical mapping and real estate. And the hand has a lot of real estate, is, as does other body parts, but that's why the hand. And the, I think the shape of a bell, like a jingle bell, is what he's using as an imagery. So you're resting your right arm and your right hand slightly tipped up if that's comfortable. And you're going to feel your hand and just rest your, your arm as much as you can comfortably. And then very gently, very slowly, bring all five fingers towards the center, but you're not trying to close the fist. It's just a direction. And then slowly release your fingers. You'll notice if you go slow enough, you'll feel how much tension that we just do that we didn't even realize. And then you close it again. And then you open it again. Then the next thing you do is you notice your breathing. Now, I don't know about you, but you mentioned the word breathing. People just inhale big gulp. You wait for that to, to subside. And then you practice opening, closing with the pattern of the breath. And I don't tell them which one to do. I want them to drop in wherever that works. So now they're tracking two things. They're sensing their hand. They know they should let go of any unnecessary tension. And they're, t- they're tracking the rhythm of their breath. And I know you guys talked about heart rate variance and variability. Can you appreciate what's happening here? And let them do that maybe for two or three minutes. And then I ask them to stop. And often there is a sense of still there's some kind of pulsation. But I'll ask them to practice that first reclining so that they really get used to it. And then if and maybe multiple times a day, as long as they're doing it, if they feel that they're triggering some discomfort, they can just imagine it. That's always a good default. But I'll ask them if they practice it, then when the time comes and they start to feel any kind of ramping up, they're to go to this bell hand. And if they've really kind of incorporated it into their sense of being, they won't even have to do it. I've had people be in business meetings and actually just reflect on it and said, you know, I felt myself let go. 
I felt myself and, you know, I've all taught them how to start feeling skeletal contact points and things like that so that they don't have to, this is a way that their bodily awareness or their embodied cognition is all part of being a mature, healthy individual. Mm. I love it. And it, it speaks so much to the, you know, to the cortical smudging that we talk about all the time. And that when folks do have persistent pain, we know that that, that cortical map is simply is nowhere near as clear as in someone who doesn't. In taking this time to, I mean, just, you know, just me spending that brief period, very, very slowly opening and closing the hand, sinking it to breath. I mean, talk about a way to help get your brain dialed back into your body in the areas that have become quite disconnected. Definitely, definitely. And then you can start to have a dialogue about peripheral vision. Part of when I when I have people walk the hallway, I will have them notice where their gaze goes. And, you know, because they're going internal, even if they have a forward head and they are looking down, which is usually a structural habit. But when they go internal, their head drops down and there's another, you know, extra how much poundage carrying on their torso for, for rigidifying their, their movement patterns. And instead, so I'll say, once they notice it, they'll pop their head up. And that means only the neck got the response, which is really not what we're interested. So I will ask them and I'll start them at the beginning of the hallway. And I said, well, do me a favor. Let your eyes stay on the floor. And but now you've walked this hallway. So, you know, there's no roots on the trees, no curbs. You know, there's no hazards. Doesn't mean you should never look down again, but you need to practice your peripheral field in a vertical as well as in a horizontal. And when you have a horizontal peripheral field, you are also reducing hypertonus because it's evolutionary. We were designed to be have our senses at the top of the totem pole of our, of our system so that we can move in, in speed in different directions. But we really don't practice that, and we certainly don't practice vertical alignment. So as I ask, I tell them, watch the floor, and then think that it's starting to just move upward and let your gaze slowly track to the horizon. Now, as for the physical therapist or the, the movement teacher behind or in front of, you will find it fascinating because they will integrate whole body movement with their head moving to the horizon. And I can have my 80-year-old ladies do this and pick up on it. They don't remember anything of me, but they'll remember this. What happens, and I'll explain to them, is that they were able to have a, a functionality for their head to come up that was functional because their eyes led the direction. And just even with playing with that skill set, they were able to, to recognize, I'll ask them, what did you notice? And they said, wow, my upper body is moving now. And it's really kind of cool. And, and it's fun. And they can feel that I'm having fun with them. And there's this whole recognition of play by Todd Hargrove and Stuart Brown and all these people that are looking at this tinkering and this this kind of experimentation is a really good way to really you know, anchor into learning. Wow, that's very fascinating, Stacey. And I think, again, what I've enjoyed most about this podcast is just this alignment that we're seeing across you know, disciplines and schools of thought where I feel like we're finally coming together around this these ideas of movement and really finding our, ourselves again. Because as much of what you I've heard today is, is again, it's this lack of awareness and our our, our lack of finding our, our body. We're, we're disconnected. And I mean, that term's used a lot, but it, it is true. We're disconnected from who we are and, and our sense 
of self. Well, yeah, I agree. And, and I heard a question and I thought, oh, I, I hope I get it asked. And if I didn't, I'm going to ask it myself. Because where where does Feldenkrais fit in for the hypervigilant person that has, they're so attuned to themselves? And it seems like, what, do I want them to have more awareness, more kinesthetic or somatic awareness? But it turns out that when done in, in a very, very safe, uh, dynamic place, that smudging starts to get more refinement. And so their somatic learning actually allows them to feel more than their pain. And I am really lucky that I'm so close to UCLA because I got to hear Dr. Lobsang Rapke, who is one of the foremost thinkers and researchers on mindfulness. And so one of the things that I was able to appreciate that seemed to align with Feldenkrais is about being in a state where you can sense and feel and continue to notice pain but not feel the threat of pain and so that part i think does fall into other categories of mindfulness training and for me now i want to speak to pts and movement people you know i found this difficult because movement was such an easy thing for me i thought so i kept practicing the movement puzzles just feeling like it was a performance-driven work, and not realizing when I look over to the person who was the most compromised was really getting more learning out of it because they had to stay within move small, move slow, take rest, look for the easy. And there's a wonderful Feldenkrais quote that I love, and that's make the impossible possible, the possible easy, and the easy elegant. So we're all on that continuum. And as people age and as as boomers and all of us that are going to need to have guidance in how to take care of ourselves, because medicine is going to have a lot of problems to continue to exist as, as it does. So we are in a great position to really give people, you know, a lot of different tools that align with them so that they are able to respond to them. What a fascinating conversation, Stacey. I, I, as we close here, would you let the listeners know uh, how to find you, where you're at, social media, other avenues in which they can contact you? Absolutely. My uh, Twitter handle is FeldyPT, F-E-L-D-Y. P and T, like the physical therapy. But um, I will have full disclosure. I, a lot of my other things are with the name Smart Roller, which is all one name. And the Smart Roller is this products were what I designed to make sensory motor tools. Because I, I really was so fascinated to try and bring bring this out to people to learn how to use. I started with a foam roller because I don't know if people knew that foam rollers were actually came through. Dr. Feldenkrais was the first documented person that used foam rollers, but we don't use them in the way that he really used them. And that's to create the environment to allow people to work on the intro and extra septive system in the Feldenkrais way. So anyway, so that um, smartroller.net is, well, and I, there's a lot of different things. A lot, I try and put as many free things on there so people can just explore. They don't have to use my tools. They can use different tools, but try and use that strategy. Oh, and you know what? I have the Huffington Post blog, and I wanted to make sure I remember to say that because you know you're in one of them, right, Tim? So, indeed. Well, um, and that was, that was a big deal. When I saw that, you know, I'm like, you made the post. Well, you know what's so cool is that you, that reason we chose that photo, because you look like you are enjoying what you're doing. And I loved uh, Larry Ben's, I took that extra course called The Care. And I really like the idea because we are empathic people. And how do we 
we don't want to lose that. That that's something that that would be a shame if we as as caregivers or practitioners or movement teachers ever lose that particular um, skill set. Because I think when I hear both of you talk, you can you can hear it through you. That's a big driver for you guys. And and I also referenced Tai Chi a little bit on some of the posts. And I also looked at the myths of the core back a while ago, and I thought that would be challenging and people really responded pretty positively about it and there's some um, video of wonderful um, works of looking at Ruthie Alon who is just exquisite of how she teaches movement in her YouTube videos and things like that so I hope I have access to, to things that people you know it's not pure Feldenkrais I wanted to try and open it up to a lot of different things but with obviously that lens. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been, it's really been a pleasure, Stacy. Thank you so Thanks, much. Stacey. Really appreciate it. Wow. Well, really appreciate Stacy's time and coming on to, to let us have a few practical lessons and to really give us some words of wisdom on how we can help folks become more aware of their movement patterns and just kind of get inside of their bodies and get comfortable there and learn to move more effortlessly and thus move more and enjoy the experience more. I think our folks with chronic pain have for so long felt kind of entrapped inside of their bodies and what a great way to increase their comfort level and begin to give them a richer library of movement that they can explore the world around them and kind of get back to life with. So really an awesome episode. Thank you so much for tracking with us. ISPinstitute.com. Please check out all the courses. Make sure you're checking out the Align event coming up. Just so many good things coming down the pipe to uh, hopefully create a better world for those who are living in pain um, with every little step we take. So thanks everybody. Appreciate the support. Take care. Talk to you soon. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ISPinstitute.com. Institute.com.